You're listening to the Harris Beach Podcast, a show that explores evolving issues in the law and how they shape organizations, the way business is conducted, and how we live and work. The information provided in this episode does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials are for general informational purposes only. Thanks for listening. Here's today's host. My name is Ed Trevat. I am a partner at the firm of Harris Beach, and I specialize or concentrate much of my practice in the educational institutions area. I'm here today with Alan Winchester. Alan Winchester is both my partner who works in the cybersecurity area and also the chief development officer for CITRA. Also with us today is Joe Eckstein. Joe is the business manager for contract uh, department and the data privacy officer for the Eastern Suffolk BOCE. I want to thank everybody for being here today and thank you all who are listening in today. Uh, We appreciate it very much. Without further ado, I think we'll get into our, our topic today. The title of this presentation is Don't Let COVID Distract You from Cybersecurity. New York districts face impending deadlines on new data privacy regulation, which is very much true. The districts are faced with a number of challenges right now, to say the least. Uh, They are reopening and and doing all the reopening things, whether that's remotely, partially remotely, or in person. But there's also other priorities to be mindful of, which would include the October 1st deadline for implementing Part 121 of the education regulations, which those go with Education Law 2D. That puts significant new obligations on districts for managing privacy and cybersecurity. So we're going to kind of talk today about what this new law requires, how districts are going about complying with it. Again, we've assembled this group uh, of folks who are all uh, deeply interested in this. Uh, Our districts that Harris Beach represents are all trying to comply with this. Uh, Alan, uh, in his role, works with our districts, but also with a number of other clients on cybersecurity. And, of course, Joe Eckstein is deeply involved as the data privacy officer for the Eastern Suffolk Boston. So we all have kind of a different perspective, um, and so hopefully we can share different uh, those different perspectives as we explore this topic uh, for the vulnerable population of students and how district needs districts excuse me, need to respond. So I think what we'll start off by doing is just saying a little bit about what needs to be done at the October 1st deadline. As most of you probably know, the Part 121 regulations were adopted on January 14th of this year and originally supposed to be uh, implemented as of July 1st. Due to the COVID crisis and everything else, that implementation deadline was pushed off to October 1st. And so basically, um, next week, we're recording this on September 25th. So next week, districts are going to have to do and make sure they've done a number of things. They have to adopt a data and security privacy policy. Uh, They have to publish their bill of rights on on the website and everything. They have to designate a privacy, a data privacy officer, i.e. somebody like Mr. Eckstein for the Suffolk policies, Mr. Suffolk policies. They have to have third-party contractor agreements in place. And I will tell you, from my perspective, um, our educational institutions team has done a very good job working with folks 
uh, that do the cybersecurity and, and, and that sort of thing. We've sent out to all of our 130-odd educational institutions those third-party agreements that need to be sent out. Those agreements are modeled on the SED's data privacy agreement uh, that was just recently published, published in August, um, and, and that was to implement uh, the aspects of the third-party uh, contractor agreements that need to be in place. For any of you folks out there listening to this who are attention to detail geeks, you'll notice that, uh, we noticed that in Article 2, Section 12 of that model agreement, there is a, an error, a small error that really doesn't affect much. It makes a reference to seven business days as being the time to respond to a breach, and it's seven calendar days, so a little bit shorter time frame than mentioned uh, in the actual guidelines from SED for third-party contracts. Uh, you also have to implement employee training, employees who have access to uh, personally identifiable information, the PII that's talked about. So those are the sorts of things that are supposed to be done by October 1st, and, and most school districts, BOCES and the like, have, have done most, if not all, of these things already. But we still want to talk a little bit about compliance. And I guess what I'd like to do is kick this off by asking, throwing out a question for, for, for the panel here, Joe and Alan. Where is compliance failing in district's priorities, or where should it fall? Excuse me, where is it falling in a district's priorities? Where should compliance with the Part 121 regulations fall? Uh, thoughts on that, Alan? Well, I, I think it needs, uh, ironically, I know with COVID, you know, everyone has got a lot of other concerns that are, you know, just operationally how to get it going. But with all the remote workforce, I think that um, the compliance, particularly into the areas of data security, has to fall a little higher than maybe where people initially thought. And I, and I say that because there are a number of bad actors out there who are, particularly in the area of ransomware, are exploiting government entities and they're they're really targeting government high and, and it's interesting the ransoms now for government are 10 times higher than what it is for individual data subjects uh, for like a private organization so we're seeing a lot of towns municipalities county cities so school districts you know being hit with ransomware and the the ask from these these criminals are really remarkably high so Security is, is something that I think has to be elevated because otherwise the, the cost to get data systems back and running is gonna be really, really high. I also think privacy is a fundamental concern for school districts. And so with, with remote workforce, people connecting into servers and, and environments from their home computers, which are not necessarily brilliantly protected, the, the risks are just higher than people would otherwise perceive. So I, I think it has to fall higher than Maybe some districts are already putting it. Yeah, it would seem to me that education law 2D's goal is basically to try to create a culture of privacy in school districts as to how they handle and disclose data. So I'd be interested in hearing from you, Joe, uh, you know, based on your conversations and your own experience, your conversations with colleagues and so forth, uh, what do you think about the compliance and where that's falling in your priorities with all the things that you have to do? Yeah, I, I think that you have to put in perspective that education section 2D, education law section 2D has been around for five years now. And it really should be the case that a lot of districts as well as the BOCES 
have already placed a high priority on complying with uh, Section 2D even prior to Part 121's implementation. So Part 121 comes along this year, and really, from my perspective as a contracts manager, I'm looking at Part 121 as suddenly the, the, the accountability for implementing what should have been done for the last five years. I mean, there are some new things in Part 121, like the NIST framework and the guidelines for a timeline of how you respond to notice of a breach and a parent making a request. But other than these um, very specific uh, niceties for how to respond, so much of what EdLaw 2D is about should have been a priority long before COVID. Now, no doubt, I agree 100% with Alan that as a result of the pandemic, there is uh, an increase in cyber criminal activity. And it also is the case that because people have shifting priorities, as well as new responsibilities, that it does make it more likely that people will make mistakes. So much of what this is all about is our behavior. Whether or not you make a mistake in clicking an attachment in an email could be the difference between letting in a cyber criminal into your institution or not. So these sorts of uh, distractions that have now been put in your way as a result of new responsibilities with the pandemic definitely makes this a higher priority. There's also the district reality that so much of the operation has gone virtual. Students are learning from home and they're logging into programs and they're accessing things that they're not necessarily familiar with. And I probably would venture that many of the teachers are less familiar with than even the students. This causes, I think, the biggest concern for me as a data uh, protection officer that I would be concerned that the, that the people who are using virtual education tools are n not aware that their own uh, systems at home could be causing breaches. You're using your own Wi-Fi. Do you have firewalls in place? Do you have even the basic free malware and, and, and spyware and anti-virus software that comes with uh, most Microsoft products for free. And I think that these are places where a district really needs to up the ante with paying attention to what's going on. I couldn't agree with you more, Joe. I think that's a, a very good point. This is about behavior and about getting people to think about how they're um, using data and when they're using data. Um, we have the recent example of the Schenectady School District who was using a normal Zoom type platform. The platform was hacked and, and they got all these uh, inappropriate images and so forth, Nazi and porn and stuff like that. And, and that just highlights the, the fact that people need to think about these things and, you know, switch to instead of a regular platform, perhaps, or, or something that doesn't have firewalls and so forth. You know, they have Zoom for Education, which is EdLaw 2D compliant and, and other, you know, I'm not endorsing that company. Other platforms have similar things. 
But the salient point I'm trying to make here is, is along the lines you were talking about, Joe, is we really need to think about um, all the aspects of where privacy can be lost, where data can be lost or stolen. Um, I think Alan told me once upon a time, and he can elaborate on this, that there's, you know, a district may have 400 known applications that hold protected information thereabouts, but you've got a whole host of other potential dark applications. It can be used by individual educators, perhaps that, you know, administration and so forth doesn't really have any idea what's going on. So um, I know you've had some issues or some experiences with that, Alan. What, what's your take on that? I, I agree with Joe that EdLaw 2D has been around for a long time. Um, I, maybe where we diverge a little bit in, in it is until 121 came around and said, now you got to do it. I think a lot of districts ignored it. Yeah, I know we, it's there, but it, you know, until there was some teeth and you had to do it, I'm not sure it was totally adhered to. And the, it's almost like a throwaway line in it that it says implement the NIST, NIST CSF, but that's like an amazing ask for school districts. And in part, you know, the CSF is something that I think causes a lot of confusion for people because it's not really a thing. It's a way of looking at things in terms of organizing controls and procedures and processes that you put in place. And, you know, implementing the CSF is actually implementing a lot of controls and protections in place. And part of that is inventorying the, the information you keep in the organization. So we've been working with a couple of school districts. This is more in the micrometric role, but we've been working with a lot of school districts in terms of identifying where they hold teacher principal type data. And off the bat, they can identify just in a few school districts, 500 different systems that are holding that, right? And, and now you can realize, well, but there are third grade teachers, fifth grade, you know, who are using their own applications. And those are what, you know, I think you're, you're meaning when you say dark, dark applications, ones that, you know, administration is not aware of, they're being used, they provide value to a teacher, but, uh, and, and presumably provide value to the class, but they're not, you know, no one's got a contract on them, no one even knows the thing exists. So there's student teacher principal data potentially stored in those sites. The district is unaware of the use of this data. Now you have data with a third party that is not necessarily subject to any contractual protection, any scrutiny, any oversight. And, and that will always be the case. There will always be dark applications because in an educational environment, you have smart people doing innovative things, right? They're going to find new applications that do it right. They're going to implement those things, but you've got to, you've got to have to figure out, okay, is this really a valuable thing? If it is, go protect it. And then you have to add it to your system security plan to do it. And, and, and that's part of implementing the CSF is understanding where your data is kept understanding how your data is protected and making sure that it's adequate to whatever the requirements are for the district and that you have the appropriate controls in place to protect that information and audit on it. And that's where I think a lot of districts are having trouble because they do security in sort of an ad hoc manner, but they don't have a program, which is what they have to now implement if you're going to implement the NIST CSF. And that, that, that program is actually a very big ask. Excellent point, Alan. Joe, I'd, I'd like to kind of get your view on a couple of things about risk. And just talk a little bit about the overview maybe of the risk to districts, the data handlers, and, and to the students. For, for, from my perspective, stepping aside from my current role as a contracts manager and a data protection officer, 
Um, I come from a background of having worked in the insurance field, and I view risk from the point of view of the person who is the object or the victim of the event. So for me, it's very difficult to see risk other than looking at it from the point of view of the student. The student is the person whose data is going to be lost. The student is the person who really has the least uh, control over protecting that which they want protected. From the point of view of the district or the data handlers, the word risk really uh, translates more into liability. So the way that they behave is going to expose risk to the students. The data might be breached or mishandled, but uh, the district and the data handlers are looking at their behavior from the point of view of well, if they have an insurance policy protecting them in the event of a breach, that's liability, or they may have to comply with laws, that's liability. Sure, they're running risk in the sense that if they do something wrong and data is lost, they might lose their job, that's risk. They might be hit with a fine, I guess that's risk. But really, in in the overview of what EdLaw2D is trying to accomplish, the risk is all with the student. The student is the, the person who we are trying to protect. We want their data to be secure and only used in proper circumstances, right? We, we, we have guidance in 121 that says that there is a reason for this data to be shared with a third-party contractor. There's a reason for this data to be collected in the first place. And that reason is for the furtherance of this student's education or for the proper and better running of the institution. If you don't have one of those reasons, you shouldn't be collecting the data in the first place. You know, we're not the United States Census Bureau trying to collect data just for running analytics. Right? We have an obligation to show why we want this data, why we're sharing it with a third-party contractor, what is its educational purpose. So from that point of view, I, I view the word risk as falling squarely on the students. The student bears all the risk. Districts and data handlers have responsibility. They have liability, they have responsibility. And if you look at it from that point of view, I think that every time you, you wanna enter into a contract to provide a service for a student, you're not thinking of it from the point of view, well, what's the risk if I enter into it and it turns out that I've done something wrong? No, what happens to the student if I enter into this contract and something goes wrong? This could be something that's very detrimental to even a single student. And, and so the care that needs to go into it needs to be commensurate with always looking at it from the risk of the student, not your own personal risk or the vendor or the contractor's risk. And, and, and if I may, let, let me just also point something out to, to go back one question where we were talking about opportunities for data 
to be uh, in this sort of dark venue where it's outside of the view of IT. I think there is where you want to say as a district or a data handler, you're doing some risk assessment. Part of your assessment is where is their data being stored or, or, or transferred where we're not really paying attention because it's not obvious. It seems obvious to us that the risky thing is for some teacher to try some new um, app or some new technology, cutting edge, trying to push the envelope. And it's in that space where, as the IT director, you're losing a handle on the control. Whereas, as the data protection officer, I'm losing a handle on the control of that data. But that isn't always the case. Right, you could have an attendance office where they're they're photocopying attendance records for students, and there's a lot of personal data. And then on any given day, somebody comes into the office to do routine maintenance on that photocopy machine. They plug their diagnostic equipment into your photocopy machine, and guess what? They're downloading all the data from that copy machine into their computer, and you've just unwittingly shared potentially thousands, tens of thousands of student records with a photocopy repair company who may decide this is a great opportunity for them to use that data for future marketing purposes. So there is the place where it's not always obvious what the risk is or how you assess risk. And, and if you think of it always that the risk is with new technology or cutting edge, that's not always the case. So I think that you need to work in collaborations with all your your interested parties and figure out where data is stored and how it's touched, sometimes even in a very old-fashioned way. It's not always cutting edge. But I still think the focus for risk, the word risk, I hear students. I agree. I mean, I'd add to that the teachers and the principal data as well, just because that's protected. And obviously, you know, when you're using an application, you'd want to make sure that you're you're looking out for your colleagues as well, because they're protected also under it. But I agree, you know, you want to look at it from the point of view as well, especially as a data protection officer, what's the risk to the data subject, right? I mean, the organization is a government entity, you know, it's, it's got immunity to a lot of this. What's the risk to the to the data subject is something that I think a good DPO really wants to focus on how will this help or harm the people I'm, I'm charged with protecting. Yeah, and it seems to me that that can be also be part of a training element because if you're training the people who have access to, to the protected information, uh, you can also you know, work into that training that they need to make uh, administration, the data protection officer aware of things like your copier because you know, that's that's the sort of Trojan horse, if you will, uh, that, that could be a source of data leaks that you don't ordinarily think about. But if you've got folks who are handling the data itself in some fashion, then I think that's part of this training and the part of the awareness and everything that the regulations in Ed Law 2D were designed to uh, really uh, implement so as to protect, as you say, the students in, in the privacy of their data. Let me switch topics a little bit here. You know, obviously we're coming up on the real implementation date for all of this stuff. What challenges uh, do you see as having emerged for districts and the BOCES? 
And I guess I'll throw it back to Joe first. Well, certainly resource allocation is the biggest uh, issue. Yeah. Uh, you know, initially when Part 121 came out and they announced that they were going to be seeking compliance with the NIST framework, for me personally, that was the biggest hurdle to ask the question, well, what the heck is in this framework? Uh, thankfully, uh, I have some experience with applying frameworks and applications in uh, prior occupations where I worked in regulatory uh, environments, but uh, honestly, I was clueless what NIST framework was. So I think that if you're a district that has procrastinated on this and you're suddenly up against this deadline, um, there's a big learning curve right there uh, to get up to speed with what that means. Now, in, in my particular case, uh, one of the uh, challenges that I was able to overcome by hiring uh, an outside company to bring in a software package to help me was how am I going to keep track of all of the different things that I need to keep track of in order to build the NIST framework, right? So, so the NIST framework is, is not uh, an end solution. It's, it's a, a tool that's going to help me make assessments but assessment of what? Well, there's a, there's a lot of things you have to assess. If, if you're going to do the NIST framework correctly, you want to capture everything that has to do with uh, management, storage, and transfer of a student's data. And as a contract manager, right, stepping out of the, the, the DPO role, I also want to use NIST a little beyond what's required by part 121 it starts to look like a great tool for uh, just general management of the overall it system internal protections of data that has nothing to do with student data right so even even just our uh, own usage i'm now working on a company laptop from home are there any places where I'm storing student data on my laptop? Absolutely not. I have no access to student data. However, I still think that my company should put in all the proper protocols to protect my laptop. And that's going to fall under the NIST framework in terms of that analysis. So I think that um, for me personally, that was a, a very big hurdle. Making checklists and Understanding all of the different obligations of Part 121 is very challenging if you don't have help. I have help. I, I have hired a company that, that, that provided me with a software package that guides me through a lot of the steps. And that is extremely useful as a DPO, especially if it's not a full-time job for you. For me, the contract management position is a full-time job. Being the DPO is what I do in the evenings after I leave work, and I put in another four hours a day being a DPO. It is tough. And I think that in the environment of a pandemic, I would be surprised if any district is able to devote the resources to put a department together of, of 
even a full-time person, let alone what I think is really a three or four person job to manage the district's data protection. So you need help from outside. And I think that you need to look to those outside resources. But the biggest challenge for me was that learning curve. I needed to know what the NIST framework was, what the requirements of 121 were, and to, and to have an understanding. I, I, you need to understand what you need to do. You can't just wing it. Excellent points, Joe. Alan, you've had a chance to work with a number of our school district clients and BOCES. What, what do you think as far as the challenges that have been emerging and that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think initially a lot of the schools, you know, approached it from a, a legal standpoint as to get their contract shored up, make sure they had um, good riders in place to shift the obligation to the third party contractors that, are, you know, they're using it. And they certainly had challenges with the, the larger software providers because they're not interested in negotiating the districts, right? They, they You know, whatever their contract is, it, it is, right? And it's, and if 121 has requirements in it that aren't in their contract, they're like, well, that's fine. Don't use our product, right? We're not going to change our copy. So that, that was an initial challenge. But I think most districts have sort of worked their way through that as best they can, right? I agree with Joe that the residual challenge was that little uh, piece about implement the NIST CSF and implement the security and privacy requirements of 121, which, you know, were kind of one line, but it's a, it's a doozy in there. and you know, my other role was symmetric, and, and that was a product that we wrote to sort of try to outline the, the, the legal requirements to IT personnel as to what they need to do to comply with any regulation. And when we saw 121 came out, we, we looked at it and thought, oh, well, actually, this is something that you can chunk in. We could identify individual controls that need to be done and and that was something that i think schools were, were it was a new thing for schools and districts to look at because they've always done great security right they had good firewalls they had virus protection they had patching if, if service you know they did it um but what they didn't have was a formal program and and what we could find is you know helping the districts put their program on rails so that they have a checklist they have a process to inventory their their systems inventory, the data they keep on those systems to find the risk that those data poses either to the organization or to the data subject and lining that up and then identifying, well, what is it, what are the things you need to do to actually implement the CSF? What are the things you actually need to do to implement the privacy requirements of 121? Because CSF doesn't have a whole lot of privacy in it. It's mostly security. You know, most of the, the controls in the CSF are all security, but 121 has a lot of privacy requirements. So then we had to write controls that would do the requirements of 121, and we put them into a sort of a checklist in our process that schools could use. I think that's been somewhere where, where we've been able to help the districts um, implement that requirement of 121. And, and for a lot of districts going into it, a lot of districts that are looking at it, I see that as probably their their biggest challenge. How do we sort of wrap our arms around this enormous problem of all the data, all the users, all the information that a school district keeps? Because, you know, honestly, there's, there's a lot of users. If it were a private company, it would be an enormous company if you look at the school system of New York State. I mean, it's just, it's enormous. And the, the amount of data it keeps, generates, manages, and 
exposes and has risk for is, is just huge. So building that sort of formal program, uh, I think, is the biggest challenge right now for the BOCES and the district. Yes, and I think I, to echo uh, sort of in the vernacular what you and Joe have said, um, organization is the key to happiness and to figure out a way, whether it's an outside vendor with a software program or whatever, to kind of organize this process of compliance is, is been huge. I know I've talked to a lot of districts and they do, we've used the word daunting past a few times here. And it's, if you just look at what you have to do, it is daunting until you start to break it down in some sort of a systematic fashion. So I guess what I want to do is by way of wrapping up, is just kind of ask you guys what couple nuggets that you might leave for our listening audience. What should districts be asking their legal teams as they look to comply? And what should they be asking their third-party vendors or even asking their BOCES? Yeah, so I guess I'll jump in. This is Joe. One of the legal questions that I think in the future and, and, and even at this point, this juncture, jumps out at me. So for the contracts that I'm entering into, and so I could imagine any district, you, you, you're going into a contract, and there's this section in the law, it's 121.5C1, and it's the part of the law that says you're going to do this analysis and you have to ensure or, or, or somehow answer the question, is every use and disclosure of personally identifiable information by the education agency being used for the benefit of the student and the educational agency? So, right, this is that threshold question of should I be giving this data to this contractor? Is this something that is helping a student? Is it for the benefit of the education? And I think that this section of law, if, if I may say so somewhat boldly, was rather poorly drafted. I think that it, it left open many interpretations of what it means for a, an educational institution to decide if there's some benefit to the student. Every one of the contracts that we as a BOCES enter into is for the benefit of the student. We don't enter into contracts that hurt students. We don't enter into contracts for institutions other than school districts or for our own BOCES students. So the, the idea that you would leave so vague what it is at, the, at its most basic uh, question, can I give personal information to this contractor as part of entering into this contract, or is this contract one which I should not do that? Now, granted, the rest of Part 121 gives you the framework for what to do, right? So you're going to give the data to this vendor, this contractor, but you have all these requirements. You have to ask them for a data privacy plan. You have to ensure that they're going to comply with 121. You have to have a, a parent's bill of rights. You have to make sure that parents understand you're giving the data to these, these vendors and the parents have the right to ask about that, right? So there's all these precautions in 121. But right at the outset, the law could have been written to be much more restrictive. It could have been written to say, 
No, you, you are not going to give any personal information to a vendor or a contractor. And then it could have carved out exceptions. And then it could have said, unless. And then it could have very specifically said, here are reasons why it's okay to give data to, to a, con- a contractor. The way it's written, I think districts should be working closely with their lawyers. When in doubt, if you're not sure if this is a proper contract for sharing data with a vendor or a contractor, you should reach out to your lawyers. I think also in terms of any kind of a data privacy plan that you're putting on your website or a privacy policy, uh, as Alan mentioned earlier, the documents that you add to your contract, any writer to a contract that you reference in your contract is a part of the contract. Simple. So your initial parents' bill of rights, your initial Edward 2D rider, and any binding document that you're agreeing with a contractor or even as a BOCES that you're agreeing with a district to be bound by the terms of the contract should at some point have been run by your lawyer. And these are legal documents that, that I think a district should be getting legal advice about at least the framework, the the, the template that you're going to use for all your other contracts. And then as a district, if you want assistance from a BOCES, you're going to be looking to the RIC, your your regional information center, to find out what opportunities the RIC is offering to sell a product that is going to help you manage compliance. Or what technical support they can offer. Do do they have contracts with uh, software companies that do cybersecurity? You may also want to seek just general guidance on how to set up a a simple uh, checklist of what to do. Because the BOCES are sharing with each other. The RICs do communicate with each other. They do have templates. Our BOCES has a data privacy plan that we've passed that um, is in compliance with our October 1 deadline. And that was not something that we designed on our own. It was a collaboration. And I think that that is a really good thing for people to collaborate, share these ideas. And personally, I'm in favor of more uniformity statewide. I think that if there was one singular parent's bill of rights that was used statewide by all the districts, it would give all the districts and it would give every BOCES so much more leverage over third-party contractors. You know, Alan mentioned this idea that the third-party contractor wants to negotiate with you and wants to take out as many of of their obligations as possible. Well, the law was written to give the third-party contract some of that leverage. You can take some of that leverage back. The way you take that leverage back is by standing together. If all the districts and all the BOCES stand up to a particular contractor and say, no, we're not going to negotiate out this term or that term. We're going to stand and and, and the, the contractor is not going to walk away from an entire state's worth of business. It's not going to happen. But they will walk away from a single district if a district says no. So I think that that's what you want to be asking your lawyers. You want them reviewing all your documents. And I think you want to ask your BOCES about what resources they are currently using and, and, and what contracts they have available for you to, to purchase from. Excellent point all, Joe. Alan, what, what sorts of things do you think that um, districts should be asking uh, as far as 
their attempts to comply with this law. Yeah, well, you know, John, I didn't rehearse this ahead of time, but I, I agree that the standing together notion is really important. So, you know, I think the DPOs and the individual districts should definitely be looking to work with their BOCES and RICs to coordinate with the other DPOs in neighboring districts. You know, in addition to the reasons Joe mentioned, I would also say that it defines a standard of care. You know, many, many hands make the load lighter, like the old saying goes. It's not like this is someone's sole job. They all have other jobs. So if you can work with, you know, your fellow DPOs and work with the BOCES and the RICs to define what are the controls we're going to implement? What is, how are we going to do this CSF across mobile districts? Yeah, sure. Some districts may have unique requirements that, you know, they're going to vary from what their neighboring district will do. But at a certain point, why, why should each district independently try to create a system security plan that is going to be, should be, I would think, largely similar to what their neighbor's plan would be because they face many of the same types of data. They address many of the same types of risks. There may be individuality where you need to, to depart, but they should start from a common reference point. We worked with one of the districts uh, upstate, or one of the, I'm sorry, both these and the RIC upstate, and all the DPOs in that area got together and figured out, okay, here's the CSF, here's what we need to do. But what do we want to address first? We can't do all of the controls that the NIST CSF requires us to implement. What do we want to do first? Where do we see the biggest risks to our students, our teachers, and principal data? Which of those controls, if we were to look at them, would help us get first? And that's yeah, the system security plan will have all the controls you need to have, but which are the ones we're going to focus on that give us the most bang for our buck? Which ones should we, which system should we look at first that have the highest risk in terms of potentially exposing this type of data to the world or others? And, the, and they got together and they, they did that. If, if, you know, for people not in, in that Monroe BOCES that we worked with, you know, for other, you know, I think that's a really powerful thing. And if in other BOCES, other RICs, they could get together and sort of figure out what makes sense for their area, what makes sense for their neighborhood, how, which controls do we want to implement first, then work with a software vendor, work with an implementer, work with a third party, work with your internal resources and, and figure out which, what are we going to do first? How are we going to approach it and develop a plan over one, two, three years as to how to get the full CSF implemented and assessed and fully fully operational. But you create that standard of care, create that, that level of, of engagement within your community. I, I, you know, I, I think you're going to get a much better result than if each group tries to do it on their own, tries to invent it on their own. Because like the, the folks in the Monroe, we're able to give them an SSP for, I'd say, 90% of their system out of the box in, in a very short amount of time, like they could have a written SSP in less than a half hour. To, to get that going, if you're doing it all by yourself, is gonna take months of, of effort uh, for, for very little benefit. So I would definitely work with your Rick and BOCES to say, how can I collaborate with you, with my peers, to get this going? And then long-term, I, I think what the different DPOs should work with is outside of their BOCES and outside of the RIC, what about for the other BOCES and RICs Across the state and build up, you know, a, a user group, if you will, or, or a group that's going to get together 
and figure out where do, where do we see risk for our students? Where do we see risk for our teachers and principals? How can we reduce that risk and start looking at it? Because if you share the information, they, a lot of outside of, you know, they have these, these centers where you share risk. And if you can share it with each other, it, it will help uh, reduce that risk. And then adapt your SSP each year. Change it so that it gets stronger and stronger. And I think both season risk can definitely help with that as well. Well, that's a, those are great points, Alan. Um, I think we had a lot of great conversation here on, these, on this very complex law and, and how to comply with it and so forth. And uh, I really want to thank uh, Joe Eckstein from the uh, Eastern Suffolk OCs and my partner, Alan Winchester, for you know, bringing their perspectives and experience to the table. Uh, I think it's been great. Hopefully, you, uh, those of you listening have also found it beneficial, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Thanks for listening to the Harris Beach Podcast. Be sure to visit harrisbeach.com to join the conversation and access show notes. Please rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast.